Well, again, happy Mother's Day to all of our moms here today. And as you leave today, be sure to grab a gift that we have for you by the door. There's a flower. You can take your pick, and we hope that your day with uh, your family is quite special. And we have a mother who is going to be sharing a story of God's faithfulness this morning. This is the year of 52 stories. Each week, a different attender at the mill is sharing a story of God's faithfulness. Would you give a warm Mill Church welcome to Letha Hopperditzel? My name is Letha Hopperditzel, and this is my story. I'll be honest in saying that I wasn't sure I wanted or could do this. There were certainly reservations. I was afraid of causing hurt feelings, or I didn't want to place blame on anyone in my family, as a very few have been privy to my story. As I sorted through my feelings and prayed about it, I realized that through Jesus and the series of my life events that God used to shape and form me, I am who I am and where I am today. I grew up in a Christian home, and I was very active in my church. This is where I learned that Jesus loved me and died for me, and initially, a seed of faith was planted. It would be years before that seed ever had the opportunity to grow. From the outside world, all would assume everything within my family was perfect. But on the inside, we lived a second life that no one knew about. My siblings... And I were victims of a generational cycle of physical and verbal abuse and manipulation. Some of my family members were more of the target than others. At a young age, I held tight to one person, my grandmother. She was such a kind and gentle soul that was amazing, but also an unfortunate victim to her own physical and verbal abuse as a result of her alcoholic husband, which we also witnessed. Despite what she was going through, she held the family together. She loved my siblings and me with all of her heart and everything she had. From what I can remember of her, she was a kind, gentle, and loving woman, but most of all, she had faith. Due to a horrific farming accident, she came to live with us so we could take care of her. Early one morning, I remember her talking about her night, and she told us that she was arguing with the angels throughout the night because they told her it was time for her to come home, and she wasn't ready to come home yet. A few hours later, she passed away. After that, life fell apart. While I try really, really hard to remember all of the good days and the laughs and the times that my family felt like we were a family, unfortunately, the bad memories have overpowered those good memories. The amounts of verbal and physical abuse increased significantly. And I lost the only person in my life who helped us to feel safe. I was so angry with God. I couldn't understand why he would remove this kind, gentle person and safety net away from us. I thought about her often and sometimes. Throughout my childhood and teenage years, she was the only thing that kept me going, even though she wasn't physically present anymore. Growing up was hard. I felt like we were always trying to find our identities in a home where we were never good enough, and what we did was never perfect enough. Days were unpredictable, and I had my siblings and me walking on eggshells because we 
We never knew what would be the trigger. I buried myself into my music, my books, and my studies as a way to escape the pain and to help maintain peace in my home so as not to rock the boat. Unlike some of my siblings, as they were doing in their own rebellious ways, as a way to also deal with the internal struggles as well. This only caused more conflict. We all struggled with anxiety and depression, which only worsened in our teenage years. For me, my amazing youth group experiences at serving at servant events kept me from going off the deep end. My brother and I stuck together as a way to protect each other, even though I could never do enough to protect my brother. There was a suicide attempt from my younger sibling in her teenage years, and also several attempts from one of my parents. I could never understand why I wasn't good enough for someone to want to stay here on earth, which left me more confused and hurt. Once I left for college, I started to deliberately harm my own body through self-injury as a way to try to release and escape the pain and hurt that was built up inside. I was on an emotional mess and on a crazy roller coaster as I battled with depression and anxiety and anything else my therapist diagnosed me with. I struggled knowing who I was. I placed a lot of blame on myself for our childhood. I had feelings of guilt because I should have protected my brother more. I had hatred and anger towards my parents. Those feelings only further kept the seed of faith from growing. Amid my sophomore and junior year of college, one day I suddenly decided that enough was enough. I was exhausted. My life was running in circles. I was in control and the driver of everything and the gas tank was at E. At that point, that only I knew that only through the help of God was I going to break this generational cycle, which I didn't want to repeat. God had to be the priority of my life focus. Corey, who's now my husband, but was my boyfriend at the time, was also in the early stages of his faith as well. And together we decided to make God the center of our lives. I was so glad I had Corey, who was so patient and kind and my rock when I needed it. I didn't have a clue really to what a Christian life looked like, so I started attending more Bible studies and getting connected with other Christians on campus. There are various people in my life along the way, that I can still picture today that had impacted me on some way in this exploratory and new journey. Now that Jesus was behind the wheel, I was starting to finally see God's hand intertwine in my day-to-day interactions with others and how he was going to use others to guide me. One problem I was still struggling with was the big word of forgiveness. I knew that as a Christian, I needed to forgive others just as Christ forgave me. There was no way I was going to forgive my parents. By doing that, I felt that meant that by forgiving them, it was my way of telling them it was okay what happened, and it wasn't. Well, God had a plan to help me through that one day as I was listening to the Christian radio station, and there just happened to be a speaker talking about forgiveness. He made a point to say, That by forgiving someone doesn't mean what happened was okay. But by forgiving someone, I was choosing, with the help of God, to be okay with letting the past be in the past 
and to move on and not let my childhood continue to ruin the life path God has me on and in moving forward. My new Christian journey continued to grow when Corey and I married. Then at the age of 25, I found out I was pregnant with our first child. And two months later, I was diagnosed with melanoma. What a whirlwind of events as that diagnosis unfolded during this season of my life. It was that moment that kicked God's plan for me into high gear. Because for the first time in my life, I saw how short life could be. And I didn't want to waste the time and the gifts that God had given me anymore. My faith deepened further and my focus became my family. Common things that others may just naturally know how to do, especially with their upbringing, didn't come naturally for me because of mine. I didn't know how to be a mother. I didn't know how to be a wife. And I didn't know how to be a parent, and that terrified me. I knew exactly what I didn't want my children to grow through, but I had no idea of how to handle all of that. I was terrified and started struggling with various triggers. Again, God circled back into individuals that I knew from long ago and brought them back into this season of life. Bible verses that I had read dozens of times suddenly had a different meaning for me. Corey and I wanted our children to grow up knowing Jesus as the center that was being modeled within our home, which also meant we needed to be an active member of our church. If our eyes weren't focused on God during these seasons, we would have missed the open doors and the persistent nudging that we tried to politely put off to the side. There were some big moments that we decided to leap and trust in God. Those seasons of change were not easy, and some were merely a stepping stone into our next open door. Some changes were merely seasons of inner growth. These changes were never, ever easy. It was so hard to step out in faith when sometimes those steps felt like we were the minority in society, and many around us didn't understand or support us. Family and friends didn't understand how we could resign from full-time jobs with benefits and insurance to seek God's other purposes for the lives and the lives of our own children. But God was with us, and we trusted him. He provided for us in ways we never even expected, and some were the actual desires of my heart that I'd never expressed to others before. He gave me an amazing father-in-law and an amazing stepfather who finally showed me what a true father-daughter relationship looked like. That was something I always longed to know, but I had never expressed to anybody else. He was with Corey and I when we were able to start a family business using the gifts and talents that only God provided. He was with us when I resigned from teaching to raise in school our own three children. His plans were always bigger and better, even though not necessarily always easier. These leaps of faith opened up new doors for us. Some we never knew even existed, and some we know are yet to come. When you get to a certain point in your life where you can look back and see God's hand along the way, closed doors that needed to be closed that initially you were angry about, awkward stepping stones and such that needed to occur so you could be where you are today, you find yourself trusting God just a little bit more because you finally can see that proof that he's truly in control. I've learned that a Christian life changes your perspective. We may not always agree with God's plan or understand it, or we may not even like it, but we know that he has the bigger picture in place for us already. We just have to pray and trust in him enough to take the next step. I have learned that life as a Christian hasn't been easy, but it now has meaning. 
I've learned that situations won't last forever. There can be hope and joy in the middle of all the hurt and grief. Sometimes when you don't have the strength or the know-how of whatever you're facing, then you rely on the promises and his word and those people that God has put in your life to help hold you and guide you up. Never, ever underestimate the impact you have on others with your words and your actions and the ways God can use you to help you guide and serve others. I am who I am today because of those people. Because God's hands were intertwined in my life through various events, situations, and people from the very beginning. Those things were not a coincidence. They were planned even before I was born. My name is Letha Hopperditzel. This is the year of 52 stories, and I'm forever thankful that Jesus is the hero of mine. The sentence in Letha's story that stuck out to me uh, was something along the lines of, with God's help, we can break generational cycles. Last night, Shannon and I had dinner with uh, a family that we love so much, and they too, with God's help, broke a generational cycle. You can break... A gen, you know, I think about the words, but God. <laughs> you know, so many of us have been through so much, but God, but God stepped in, but God changed our stars, but God lifted us out of a pit. Um, God is capable and, and able to change the structure the health, the vitality of your family tree, if you will let him. Amen? It's what he does. He's so good. Thank you, Letha, for sharing. Uh, again, happy Mother's Day. It's the last time I'll say it, if I haven't said enough to you moms. I grew up reading in North Carolina, Calvin and Hobbes. It was in our local paper. My dad got the paper in North Carolina, and in one edition, Calvin's standing by his mother's bed and and says to her, Mom, wake up, I made you a Mother's Day card. And his mother was most pleased and starts reading it aloud, thinking how sweet he is. And it said this, I was going to buy a card with hearts of pink and red, but then I thought I'd rather save the money instead. It's awfully hard to buy things when one's allowance is so small. So I guess you're plenty lucky I got you anything at all. Happy Mother's Day. There, I've said it. Now I'm done. So how about getting out of bed and fixing breakfast for your son? I think we'd all agree. It's not easy being a mom sometimes, right? It's tough. You don't get the honor and the reverence and the respect that you all deserve. You may have heard the conversation between uh, another mother and her college friend. The mom said, before I was married, I had three theories about raising children. Now I have three children and no theories. Have you heard that? I don't have any theories anymore. I thought I was going to be an exceptional dad, and boy, was I uh, surprised to find out how difficult parenting is. About 100 years ago, by an act of Congress, 
President Woodrow Wilson proclaim a second Sunday in May, which is today as Mother's Day. He deemed it for a time of, quote, public expression of our love and reverence for the mothers of our country. And it is true, I think, that certainly no nation is greater than its moms um, and that they are truly difference makers. So we want to magnify and lift up moms today at the mill. Uh, Before I do that, I want to recognize that some uh, people uh, really struggle with Mother's Day. This can be for different reasons. You may have lost uh, your mother. Uh, You may have been raised by a single dad. Some of you had a very difficult relationship uh, with your mom. Maybe some of you here have lost a child or children, and maybe others of you have had difficulty becoming pregnant or have even been able to become pregnant. So if you have some level of pain in your heart today, I just want to acknowledge you and acknowledge where you are and tell you that God sees you and that God loves you. And you're not alone in your pain. Uh, And certainly there are those who on this day will grieve, and God has promised to be with us in our grieving and to carry our burdens. So I just want to start this morning before I get into uh, the sermon by praying for all ladies. Would you just bow your heads today? Heavenly Father, we just lift up our moms, Lord, that you would give them strength today. Lord, some of them may feel alone and isolated. There may be moms here today with prodigal sons and daughters, uh, children who have wandered far from you. We just pray that you would bring peace to their hearts today. Lord, we also pray that you would be with those for whom Mother's Day is difficult and challenging. God, that you would still them and wrap them in your arms. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Last Sunday, we uh, dedicated a couple babies to the Lord we have always used the story of Hannah as an example of a biblical dedication. I've always been a bit intrigued by Hannah's nobility, Hannah's uh, undergirded strength, and so I want to talk to you today a little bit more about her story on Mother's Day. I'm going to break from Colossians this week and resume next week, but before we jump into Hannah's story, I'll share with you Uh, the very last verse of the book of of Judges. In our English Bibles, the book of Ruth comes after Judges, but in the Hebrew Bible, 1 Samuel follows immediately after Judges. And this is the picture that I want to paint for you. The situation is bleak. The nation of Israel is really lost in terms of leadership. They've had poor leader after poor leader after poor leader. Uh, They've not done well, the, the nation's been turn, torn apart by sins of all kinds, perversity of all kinds. And according to Judges twenty one twenty five, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. So the nation of Israel is being oppressed by the nations that are around it, and God had appointed judges to lead his people. This was God's 
uh, design and the way he wanted leadership to happen within the nation. You know, even with that design, some of the many judges had terrible flaws. Samson was one of them, uh, weaknesses. And so the people wrongfully concluded this. This judge system, they didn't see it as a personal matter, an individual matter. They saw it as a system matter. They questioned God's system. So they said, let's do what all the nations around us do, and let's get a king. We need a king. So there was this big uh, public uproar a demand for a king. Enough of these judges. We need to adopt the world system of governance. God appointed judges, but we want a king. That was their sentiment. And so we arrive in 1 Samuel, and we're introduced to Hannah. Hannah is the mother of a prophet who will grow up to designate Israel's first king, whose name is Saul. So Hannah will have a baby who will grow up and become a prophet. Um, as we look at the first two chapters of 1 Samuel this morning, I just want to point out a few defining traits of Hannah's that might benefit all women of faith. And the first one uh, is likely no surprise to you. Women of faith experience real problems. Women of faith absolutely experience very real problems. It's so easy to think when we look at the Bible that there are a bunch of heroes and that we could never relate to them because, after all, they're in the Bible. Their lives are so perfect and meaningful. Actually, the Bible is filled with very real people, very raw people, very real problems. And sometimes they face their problems with real faith, which is admirable, beautiful, stunning to read about. In 1 Samuel 1... We're introduced to a man named Elkanah. I happen to like that name, Elkanah. How cool would it be to have a son named Elk? Would you agree with that? No? Okay. Some guys are nodding their heads. Yeah, well, that would be cool. Jotting down notes. Elkanah. Verse 2 tells us he had two wives. Two wives. One was called Hannah. The other was called Penina. Penina had children. Hannah had none. And, of course, a wife's chief role in this culture in particular was to bear and raise children. Not as much today in our culture is that thought of as a chief role. But in this culture, a barren womb was absolutely considered a curse. Hannah would have looked, been looked down upon. She would have been scolded. Uh, she would have been spiritually bothered by this when things hadn't gone according to her plans. She certainly would have been socially disgraced, and she would have evenly been, uh, even been emotionally uh, depressed. So Hannah, uh, you may be aware, joins a long line of other women in the Bible who uh, battle barrenness. In 1 and 8, I think it said, in society uh, today, women uh, battle barrenness. They have a problem uh, getting pregnant or sustaining a pregnancy. So this was no different in the Bible. And these other ladies included Sarah, Abraham's wife, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, and also Rachel, Jacob's wife. So think about that. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob we call the patriarchs. So these are the matriarchs of the faith. 
these first three women that I've mentioned to you. In addition, there's Ruth, who's a big figure in the Old Testament, had a book named after her, Boaz's wife. Also, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, was barren at one point. And you may have noticed, even reading the Bible yourself, that it would appear that most of the childless women that we read about are actually the virtuous women, the women with high degrees of character. Whereas it seems like those women who are able to easily conceive children live detached from God and his purpose and often even in great wickedness. So if this is your story, again, I say that to say you're not alone. Verse 3 tells us Elkanah and his two wives made a yearly visit to Shiloh, about a 20-mile journey to worship the Lord. This says something about Elkanah's spirituality that he made this journey to worship the Lord. Even when the whole culture was heading south spiritually, he's making it a point saying, hey, we're going to go and worship. Which means he swam against the tide of apathy. He took his family to church. He felt like that mattered. He, granted, did not have one wife. He had two wives, so he wasn't a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. But the last part of the verse, uh, in verse 3, indicates that Hophni and Phinehas, his two, the two sons of Eli, excuse me, they're priests before the Lord. They're serving in the temple, and these two boys, at best, at best, are hypocrites. At worst, they're downright evil. Okay? The Bible does not speak highly of these two boys. So he goes to church, and the two preachers at church are these two boys. Okay? Now, nothing still uh, kept Elkanah from going to worship. He could have had a, a litany of excuses. He could have said, no one else is going to church anymore. He could have said the travel is too long. He could have said the service is too early in the morning. He could have said, I don't like these two preachers anyway. And nonetheless, he went to church. So I think that says something about his devoted heart. Also, he gave portions of sacrificial meat to Penina and her children. But verses 4 through 5 tell us, again, we're in 1 Samuel 1, uh, and I'm just mentioning some of these verses to you today. I'm not going to read much. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Now, the text doesn't say this in this moment, but we get the impression that he does not love Penina, who has born children, or, you know, he, he doesn't love her as much, okay? Okay maybe half as much, since he gave uh, Hannah a double portion. Who knows? The double portion in Hebrew literally means to show the face. Uh, so he showed his face to her as culturally strange as it may seem. This was an indication that she was absolutely worthy and that he deeply, deeply cared for her, for Hannah. I imagine it would have been difficult on that occasion for Hannah to give thanks because she wasn't at the most healthy place to demonstrate 
gratitude, being that she was barren. This was absolutely a divided family. You may have picked up on that. The original cause of the division was Elkanah's decision not to marry one wife, but to marry two wives. That's not God's original intent for marriage. And so it's likely that Elkanah had married Hannah first, and then because it was such a big deal to carry on the family name and Hannah could not produce children, that he then married Penina, which of course would have been a double indignity to Hannah, his first wife. The Bible does record the polygamous relationships of even some of the patriarchs, but never does the Bible endorse polygamy. You do hear people trying to discredit the Bible by saying that it teaches polygamy, but the Bible has always taught one man, one woman for one lifetime consistently and throughout. Uh, Somebody once said that the penalty of multiple wives, do you know what the penalty for multiple wives was? Multiple mothers-in-law. Isn't that terrible? It's just awful. To be clear, I have a great mother-in-law. But you may consider that before that penalty, before you move to Utah any time in the near future. Even though these two wives did not get along, uh, the most difficult thing that Hannah faced and it's a, a, a phrase that repeated was repeated twice in verse 5 and again at the beginning of for, verse 6. And the Lord had closed her womb. And the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 6 describes the character and the personality of Penina, the other wife. Her rival, Hannah's rival, Penina kept provoking her in order to irritate her. I can't imagine this happening today. I can't imagine this happening today. But it happened often in this culture. Penina wasn't satisfied with her own children. Apparently, she felt a need to harass Hannah. The word provoke here literally means to cause her thunder. She's trying to get at Hannah. Verse 7 reveals Penina did this every year when they went to church, when they went to Shiloh to worship. And it bothered Hannah so much that she would not weep or that she would not eat and she would weep profusely. How many of you have ever experienced, you don't have to raise your hands, but a moment in life where you would weep and you would not eat? You've been that low. That's a difficult place to be in, a difficult state. This is where Hannah is. Anguish. And then in verse 8, Elkanah, the the husband, the uh, wordsmith, comes along and says, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? How many of you think that question went over well? What an idiotic thing to say, right? How stupid, how foolish. Sweetheart, you've got me here. What else could you possibly dream of, right? No. So like many of us husbands, instead of listening to her in her pain, I would think most husbands would agree, he's trying to rationalize it. 
What's he trying to do? He's trying to fix her problem. Are we supposed to fix problems, husbands, when our wives come to us with things? Sometimes, but rarely. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to listen. Some of you ladies may have been hit with some insensitive comments, either by your husband or others, and I want you to know that God understands your pain. He absolutely does. Our second takeaway is that women of faith express vibrant prayers. I love this. Hannah had some problems. She didn't lash out at those around her. She expressed her faith in prayer. And the Bible teaches that God uses our problems to get our attention and to teach us. Let me read to you Psalm 119.71. It was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. What does that mean? It means our problems can have, can have a teaching function if we will let them. Now look back at verses 10 through 11 in 1 Samuel 1. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. She made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Her weeping, Hannah's weeping, led her to worship. Her tears mingled with her prayers. I don't know about you, but the kind of prayer that arises from the bitterness of the human soul is far different than the dry prayers that I sometimes utter. It's completely different. When tears are in our eyes, our prayers come forward from the heart, and she's broken, and she's appealing to God's power and his authority and his help. She knows there's nothing that she can do. And as part of her prayer, she promises, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll dedicate him to you for the rest of his life. Here's what she knows. It's an important truth. Children are not just for parents. Children are for God. Children aren't just a blessing to us. Children are meant to be a blessing to the Lord. And it's our job as parents to shepherd and train them. Verse 12 says, she kept praying to the Lord. This wasn't just a quick popcorn prayer. This is a repeated request bathed in her tears. Notice she's praying this in her heart, not audibly. And here's what Eli says in verse 17. Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. This benediction was a huge blessing to Hannah. The high priest gives his amen to her request. And then her whole countenance changes in verse 18, where we read, She went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Do you know what happens when we spend time with the Lord? When in our depravity we go to Jesus, we're lifted up. He lifts us out. He lifts our countenance. He helps us. Our third defining trait. Women in faith experience God's provision. Verse 19 tells us 
once again, they got up early in the morning and they worshiped before the Lord. This was their practice. This is not just something they did every once in a while. Then they went back home. And a short time later, Hannah conceived. And she gave birth to a son, naming him Samuel. His name sounds like the Hebrew for heard of God. So in other words, his name was a regular reminder to Hannah of his origin and of his destiny. Now, I want to be careful here because just because Hannah's prayers for a son were answered does not necessarily mean that all prayers will be answered. Just because women of faith experience God's provision doesn't mean that it will always happen in childbearing, but it certainly does happen. It certainly does happen, and all women experience God's provision in one way or another. He loves to give good gifts to his kids. According to Matthew seven eleven. how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Last one. Women of faith excel at keeping their promises. At keeping their promises. After Samuel was born, Elkanah went once again to Shiloh to worship. Hannah decides not to go until Samuel was weaned, which in this culture would have been about three years old. How many of you mothers are glad we're not in that culture anymore? He wasn't weaned until three. That's a long time to be nursing a baby. So he's weaned at three years old. And here we see, um, this is why we say the words baby dedication so often. Really, this was a child dedication. She dedicated her three-year-old toddler to Jesus, and she's nursing and nurturing him. Hannah not only dedicated herself to her child, she dedicated her child to the Lord. She then brings Samuel to the house of God in verse 28. So now I, I give him to you, Lord, for his whole life he'll be given over to you. And she repeats that twice as if she's cementing this, her commitment, knowing she'll never revoke it. Verse 28 ends, and I'll conclude with this, with a glimpse into young Samuel's heart. Even at three years old, we read, he worshiped the Lord there. Now, I can imagine Caroline, who's four, worshiping the Lord in a temple. But it does speak to the way Hannah raised him from zero to three. And perhaps the way we haven't raised Caroline from zero to four. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy. These commands I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Maybe Hannah read that verse in Deuteronomy. Maybe she took that very seriously. Regarding all mothers who are faith-filled, listen to these words of John Stiles. I've worshipped in churches and chapels. I've prayed in the busy street. I sought my God. I found him in the waves of the ocean beat. I've knelt in the silent forest in the shade of some ancient tree. But the dearest of all my altars was at my mother's knee. God, make me the man of her vision. 
and purge me of my selfishness. God, keep me true to her standards and help me to live to bless. God, hallow the holy impress of the days that used to be and give me a pilgrim forever to the shrine at my mother's knee. Here are my summarized thoughts for you moms today. First, you're of immense worth. You're of immense worth. All ladies here are of immense worth to God. Whether or not you have a child, the Lord loves you. Lift up your head this morning. Realize that God cares for you so much. He adores you. He treasures you. You're the apple of his eye. Second, mothers, make it your mission to give your children to the Lord for a lifetime of dedicated service. There is no greater purpose, there is no higher honor than to have your children give their lives in surrender to the Lord. So work to that end. Third, last one, one of the lessons this teaches us is that each of us need to be growing in our relationship with God. Each of us. It's vitally important. Kind of reminds me uh, what happened one Sunday after a child dedication. This young family, not here, but this young family was driving away from church after dedicating a baby. And little Johnny, the older brother, cried all the way home in the backseat of the car. And his mother kept asking what was wrong, what was wrong. And the boy finally said, that pastor said he wanted us to be brought up in a Christian family. But I want to stay with you guys. If you want your kids brought up in a Christian home, make sure that Christ is in your home and in your heart. And if he is, spend the rest of your lives, moms. You don't stop being a mom even in your latter years. Amen? Senior women in the church, it just keeps going and going and going, right? So spend the rest of your life giving your children back to the Lord. They belong to him anyway. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, again today. Lord, bless our mothers today. Lord, bless the ladies in the church who need to be uplifted today. Lord, heal their hearts. Touch their minds today, Lord. Just give them healing balm from heaven today, Lord. Just miraculously Bring them peace and joy. Lord, we just pray for a thriving today in the hearts and lives of the women of our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.